0: Jane was not having a good day. She'd overslept. The kids had not cooperated in getting ready for school. She was late for her first appointment. She was in the car. The traffic was heavy. And her husband had just phoned to say that he'd got a busy day at work and couldn't pick the kids up from school, so could she do that? And at that moment, A car cuts in front of her. Well, she is really not happy. And just then, they come to an intersection and the lights are red. So she is now behind the car that cut her up. And so here is the opportunity to give someone else not a good day. So she... um, I just realized, actually, I'm walking in and out of camera, probably. Uh, sorry for you to online. Um, anyway, so she lets it rip. He's in a convertible, so she winds down the window, and she gives him a little piece of her mind with illustrations with hand gestures. Well, this is good, but then, then she hears a police siren. And unusually, it's right behind her. And she looks back in her rearview mirror, and there is a police car. The lights are flashing, and he is pointing directly at her and gesticulating that he would like her to pull over. However you do that at an intersection, I don't know. But, so, uh, she, you know, freezes, because that's what you do if a policeman asks you to pull over and he gets out of the car and he comes to her car and he asks her very politely to leave the car and to go and join him in the back of his police car and she is like mortified so she goes obediently and gets in the back of his police car meanwhile he's out on the tarmac talking into his radio and uh, she waits and eventually, he comes and he says, um, it's okay, mom, you can, uh, you can get out of the car now. You can go back to your car. She goes, why did you pull me over? And he said, well, he said, I came up behind you. And I heard what you were saying, and I saw what you were gesturing, And and then I noticed that you had a bumper sticker that says, Jesus loves you. And so I figured the car was stolen. (laughs) Well, it actually worked. (laughs) So today we're starting a new sermon series, as Don has already said, Um, Next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking in depth at the fruit of the Spirit and what it means for us to grow in Christ-likeness. We're going to focus on those ninefold fruit of the Spirit as we go through. And uh, we had the, the reading of a letter to the Galatians where we find that, uh, find that reference. And... Um, We've already used this slide this morning, it's great, I can skip over this, but um, this is our guidebook for the series, so if you want to get a copy and get ahead, then it's already been said, there's some available, and as Morningside and side are actually also going through this book and started six or seven weeks ago, if you have any questions, there's a good chance that the lady sat next to you knows the answer. Okay. Well each week we 're going to be unpacking one of the characteristics of the fruit of the spirit, and so my task this morning is just to give you a flavor um, to whet your appetite for what is to come and to just try and place this um, place this uh, fruit in the context of paul 's letter and we're just this morning we 're going to grapple with some of the Theological issues that Paul tackles in the letter, attempt to understand what he means by the fruit of the Spirit, and then finally, we're going to think a little bit about what this means for us as we live out our faith. But before we do all that, here is a, a quote. I'm sorry it's quite long but it's a quote from Wright's book that tells you everything that we are seeking to achieve through this series. So uh, if you read this and you apply it to your life, you don't need to come for the next nine weeks. And what the Spirit does, above all, quoting from Wright, is to make those who put their faith in Jesus to become more and more like the Jesus they love, trust, trust, and follow. In fact, we could say that the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 is a beautiful picture of Jesus. For, of course, Jesus himself was filled with the Spirit of God, and it is Christ who dwells within us through the Spirit. So, the more we are filled with God's Spirit, And the more the spirit ripens his fruit within us, the more we will become like Christ. Okay, so if you still want to come along for the ride, we'll get started. The Galatian churches are in trouble. Planted by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they are some of the earliest congregations with mostly Gentile believers. They have responded to the good news that Jesus died to bring them freedom from sin. They have been baptized in his name, and they have received the promised Holy Spirit. But it has been a year since Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. And the churches, now on their own, have been struggling with a simple but profound question. As a Christian, how should I behave? For the early Jewish believers, this question may have seemed quite straightforward. You just carry on being Jewish. I mean, Jewish culture was organized around keeping God's covenant. Wasn't the Torah given by God himself? So if you just stick to keeping the law, surely you're living as God wants. But for the Gentile convert, their whole culture was organized around appeasing a whole bunch of capricious deities. The meat that they bought in the market had been sacrificed to some god or other. The dinner parties and the social events that they went to were worship of Dionysus, the god of wine. And there was the Roman equivalent of going to the ball game which meant watching gladiators kill each other or criminals be torn apart by wild animals. Everything they knew or did was now up for debate. There must have been so many questions. So maybe it's not too surprising that many Galatian Christians started to choose a simple solution become a Jew. That is, they started to follow the Torah. They adopted Jewish festivals, particularly things like Sabbath observance and food laws. And some got cursed. Excuse me. Wearing these teeth in for a friend. (laughs) Some even got circumcised. Now, Paul is, to say the least, not happy about this, and in his letter, he writes at great length, explaining why this is a really, really bad idea. Now, the meat of his argument is very important. It's very dense theology, and he will expand on it later in the letter to the Romans, taking eight chapters to present it in even richer and possibly more dense theology. It's fantastic stuff, an essential reading, and we're going to skip over it this morning. (laughs) By the way, I should say, um, if you do have access to a Bible this morning, it could be quite useful if you turn to Galatians chapter 5 because we're not going to get all of the text on the slides, and you might want to look at some of it uh, yourselves. Okay, so... Before we get there, there's a second group of Christians in in the Galatian churches that come up with a different solution to this problem of behavior. They simply ignore it. The argument goes like this. Jesus has died so that my sins are forgiven. And that must mean all my sins. So it doesn't really matter what i do if i do good well fine and and if i sin well i'm forgiven so fine so we have these two groups offering very different approaches to our question we might call the first group legalism and the second license so let's now consider what paul says in response So first legalism in verse 1 of chapter 5 Paul likens it to slavery and in verse 2 he warns that it negates the value of their salvation and verse 4 gives us the reason because now they are seeking to be justified by keeping the law in essence obeying the law has become more important than following Jesus. And he points out that as a consequence of such legalism, love is replaced by conceit, by hypocrisy, and judgmentalism. We find that in verses 14 and 15. Now, sadly, this is not a problem restricted to first-century Galatia. Throughout church history, individual Christians, churches, and whole denominations have veered into legalism. So I want to pause for a moment to ask, does it sound familiar to us today today? Have you become more focused on rules than listening to Jesus? Perhaps you come from a background of church legalism and you find your faith is still very transactional. Well, we have good news this morning as we move forward. But before we get there, let's consider the license group. Paul has a simple rebuke for them. In verse 13, he points out that they are indulging their flesh, their sinful nature. In other words, what is the point of being saved from our sinful nature if we simply continue as we are? That is, to put it another way, if we are saved from something, then it stands to reason that we are saved for something else. In chapter 6, he gives an even stronger warning to these people. And he maybe paraphrased this way. We cannot fool God Turning to Christ involves a change of heart. God knows who is just paying lip service to his grace. So again, let's just pause and ask ourselves, am I seeking God's grace or just something that assuage my conscience so I can keep doing what I want to? In both cases, Paul offers the way of love as the correct response. In verses 6 and 13, he answers this. But he says, um, sorry, but love is easy to say, but love is hard to do. And Paul is at pains to point out that the Christian is not merely a reformed sinner, but an ongoing work of salvation. Whether we try to behave according to some set of rules, or we stay as we are, we are still, still, still slaves to our sinful nature. There's too many essays this morning. Sorry. Instead, Paul says, we are to walk by the Spirit, It's from verse 16. Because the spirit is opposed to the flesh, so if you are moving God's way, you are not going to be sinning. Then Paul gives us two lists, which is sort of coming down towards our theme, two lists that help us to understand how this looks. But before we get there... (laughs) In our reading this morning, it spoke about the flesh. And we do have some historical baggage, I think, as Christians around this term. The flesh, Paul is not just referring to our physical bodies, our, uh, if you like, physical urges. Instead, he's talking about our fallen sinful nature. Our bodies, yes, but our thoughts, our emotions and desires. When Paul says the acts of the flesh, he's talking about our whole sinful nature. So let's come back to that list. He's offered us two lists. The first is the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. Uh, I've actually rejuggled them here just to try and sort of group them a little bit more. But what is he getting at? These are the sort of things we might see when the sinful nature is in charge. You does it's not an exhaustive list. Things like these get in the bottom, you know. So, But it is an illuminating mix of behaviors that we could categorize like this. We have excesses of indulgence and lust. We have pursuit of supernatural power or control. We've got mental and physical violence towards others. And we have fractured relationships. Notice that some of these would have the legalists pointing an accusatory finger at the license group. See? Sexual immorality. See? You guys who go to the orgies. Drunkenness. Mm -hmm. But others are more subtle. Enmity, strife, or jealousy. These are things that maybe are aimed more at the legalists. And there are some which are obviously common to both. So let's move now to the fruit of the Spirit. Nine characteristics that I'm sure we all aspire to see in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Two contrasting lists, but we would be wrong to think of them as in some way symmetrical. Notice that Paul uses different descriptions for the lists. We have the works of the flesh, actions and emotions that can occur when we pursue our own desires and lusts. But we have the fruit of the spirit. Fruit cannot be made, and it doesn't spontaneously come into being and vanish again. It grows and it ripens over time. So for example, fits of anger describes outbursts of violent language or behavior. It speaks of discrete events. In contrast, faithfulness speaks of sticking with someone through thick and thin. You cannot be faithful some days and not others. That is, by definition, unfaithfulness. So we cannot do the fruit of the Spirit like we can do the works of the flesh. But if we live by the Spirit, then we can expect to see the fruit to grow and to take shape in our lives. The second thing to note is that the Greek word translated fruit Is singular the fruit of the spirit is these things not are these things the list is not of different fruit but nine aspects or characteristics of the Christian life of the one fruit maybe like segments of an orange or if we want to switch metaphors like the faces of a diamond. Why is this important? Well, see how these characteristics entwine and overlap one another. Can someone love without being faithful? Can they be gentle and yet impatient? Can they bring peace without a measure of patience? and self-control. No, this is a package deal. We get all nine, or none at all. Or perhaps it is more accurate to say that the size of the fruit is limited to the smallest segment. I might have the potential for great love, but if I lack gentleness, How will I be able to express it, express that love amongst the harshness? No, the weakest part of our character will always hold back our progress. We must advance on all fronts if we want to make progress. We want to advance. Is there a we in this? This is not the fruit of Michael. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It does not come as a result of what I do, but by the Spirit's presence. But let's hold that thought for a moment. First, we need to let Paul close out his argument. After describing the Spirit's fruit, Paul says this, against such things there is no law. Now, if you've been a Christian for many years like me and read this passage many times, it's always beautifully poetic. Against these things there is no law. But against? How strange. But the Greek word that most translators render as "against." It carries a, 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 con, a can't say it this morning connotation of relationship. So, like we might say, he leant against the wall. So maybe we better understand this by, uh, by paraphrasing to say there is no law that relates to such things. In other words, you cannot legislate love. You cannot define a rule to enforce patience. Of course, an act of violence may break the law, but the absence of violence does not mean gentleness. And this is what Jesus meant in his Sermon on the Mount. I'll give you an example. When he said... You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. A law can enforce conformity of behavior, but it cannot force a change of heart. Likewise, in verse 24, Paul says, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, in accepting God's grace, we have declared our sinful nature was nailed to that same cross on which Jesus died. If so how can it make sense for us to say that we can continue to live to please that self same sinful nature? So concludes Paul, legalism and license make no sense as ways for the Christian to live. Only a life lived by the Spirit can lead to a life that is Abundant that is honoring to Jesus whom we follow, that is remade in his likeness. Okay, so let's distill this down into something we can take into our week. First, it's vital that we remember that the Christian life is not primarily about behavior but about transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And this change is the work of the Holy Spirit, not ours. At the same time, we are called to an active participation in this transformation. In Hebrews 13, we are encouraged to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And in Philippians 2, Paul tells us to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose see the partnership we are to run we are to work out but it is Jesus who has founded and will perfect our faith it is God who is at work changing our will and spurring us to act according to his good purpose So in this, Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit can be useful in several ways. When we're making decisions, we can ask, what reflects more of the fruit? It's a bit like the old WWJD question. But we can look at it and say, what reflects more of the fruit of the Spirit? In self-reflection we can look for evidence or the lack of it evidence or the lack of fruit in our day in our week in our year we can ask ourselves is the fruit growing and in prayer we can allow the spirit to work in areas where we have been resisting his transformation now that being said I want to stress again that this is the work of the Spirit. It's so easy for us to turn the fruit of the Spirit into some eat, pray, love, self-help pursuit of happiness. We do not get there on our own, or even with the Spirit's help. It is the Spirit's work to which we are invited. In my home group, we are currently working through a video series on Romans, and actually I recommend this series if anyone's interested. It's found on Right Now Media. The teacher is J.D. Greer, and he made a telling point in one of the videos. He remarked that there used to be a popular bumper sticker which said, Jesus is my co-pilot, and his response was, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you are in the wrong seat. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't sit in the passenger seat in case you get into difficulty. No. You jump out of the driver's seat and you get in the back and you say, where are we going, Jesus? Jesus and uh, sorry for stealing your car. If we uh, pick up on the running metaphor from Hebrews, and there had to be a running metaphor somewhere, Uh, but if we pick up on that from Hebrews, the Spirit is running a marathon. It will take quite literally the rest of our lives. So Paul encourages us to keep in step with the Spirit. It is not for us to lag behind, harboring a treasured vice or sin, or to sprint ahead, trying to be like Jesus all at once, only to find that our legs give way. In this, then, we can all benefit from the discipline of the march, a rhythm of regular prayer and bible reading of being in community with fellow believers of making ourselves accountable to god and to others and of moving at god's speed this likely sorry this likely means slowing down becoming more intentional cutting out some distractions, making room for the Spirit to speak and bring us into all truth, as we were thinking of last week. Not that I feel I have found that rhythm, so I'm going to deflect attention to someone who has completed the race with grace. Many of you will recognize the name of John Stott, the renowned British Bible teacher, theologian, and pastor. And, as Andy would have reminded us, an enthusiastic birder. See, I did running and birding in one sermon. Getting there. In Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, the book that we're using as our guide, Christopher Wright recounts this story. John Stott prayed the same prayer every day when he first woke up in the morning. It hardly seemed surprising then that many people who knew John Stott personally said that he was the most Christ-like person they ever met. For God answered his daily prayer by making the fruit of spirit ripen in his life. And this is his prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.